Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of our Opening Up Chaplaincy podcast. I'm Stig Graham, retired Anglican priest and uh, hospice and palliative care chaplain, and I'm joined by my delightful Hi. colleague. And I'm Joe Mutlow, and I work at Bradford Teaching Hospitals in a, in a pastoral care role. Excellent. Thank you. So we're also joined this morning by... Isabel Morton. Uh, we haven't actually met her directly before this morning. So perhaps, Isabel, you'd just like to give us a, a brief, brief intro into who you are and what you're doing and uh, your interest in joining us. Yes, um, yes, nice to virtually meet you both. So I'm Isabel. I'm um, a junior doctor. So I'm currently in my last year of medical training. Um, I graduated from Leeds University and spent some time working in Yorkshire, now down in London. Um, so I am not a palliative care specialist, but I hope to be in the near future. Um, I've done a, a number of jobs in palliative care uh, roles and also um, sort of try to try to have some flavours of palliative care in the acute setting in a hospital I work at the moment. So um, that's really my, my background. So thank you for having me. Well, I'm oh, interested right. to start off, I think, Isabel, to find out what your encounters have been with chaplains so far? Yes. Mm. Um, yes, on, on the whole, extremely, extremely positive. Um, it's interesting. I think working at the hospice, chaplains, you're, you're very much uh, aware of them. You know, you're part of an MDT team. Um, you, you have quite a lot of formal and informal contact with them, but there's, they're very, very present. And I think in the hospitals, sometimes that is not quite so much the case and you have to sort of actively seek them seek them out but your relationship chaplains are quite different I feel mm. um my experiences working in hospice medicine on the whole the chaplains as I say were very present for patients and it would be very much a they would be seeking out who who they should be getting involved with who they wouldn't be getting involved with but also very much there for the staff and there's quite a lot of a formal support um I think just sort of having chats you know I remember when I was a very new doctor making christmas cards with the chaplain and actually you know looking back on it i recognized that was a a nice thing to do but it was also a very deliberate thing to do it was a mindful exercise and it opened up a lot of conversations and yeah. i actually really appreciated that that was available and um you know looking back on it i realized that that was a uh, yeah, a very considered, considered <laughs> thing to, to allow us to do um yeah. but in, in the hospitals um particularly you know I work in a big teaching hospital um I think the chaplaincy team is very very big you know it's very diverse which is fantastic but we just don't have it is you can't have the same sort of relationship because of the the workloads that everybody has yes. um and so there it's a bit more of a it's, they're still fantastic they still do a, a good job but there isn't I don't I wouldn't say I have a particularly personal relationship with any of them and, and I think sometimes there will be some obvious situations where chaplaincy is called upon but less so is it something that um we are able to explore with people I, mean, I think the palliative care team probably have more of a role in doing that but I, i'd say um they tend to come chaplaincy sort of called upon slightly towards their ends at latter stages of somebody's life and are, are um you know there for this sort of time around death particularly but not so much before and, and then that also means that we don't have a as much to do with chaplaincy before. Mm. I think yeah. that's very true in the acute setting. It's this balance between 
proactive and reactive and I think that's mm-hmm. really difficult because it often is reactive it's often as people are die or nearing death or get bad news that we're called in but there's all the other yeah. spiritual and pastoral care that we do yeah. that's not about death which is also taking up our time but um yeah and I'm interested there as well what you said about picking up on um chaplains having a role for looking after staff and being there for staff I've just done a three-day almost like an observation in A&E to see how the chaplaincy team might be able to support staff and patients more effectively and it's very tricky you know because you've got this very packed waiting room where everybody can hear everybody else and people have been waiting for hours then the patients distributed to different areas after triage and also waiting and then you have within that people vulnerable situation because of a diagnosis or because of their health and um i'm wondering if you have an chaplaincy could work in a and e it's particularly around people who have a terminal diagnosis or um uh, in a very vulnerable position um gosh it's hard isn't it and i i think um uh, particularly people with sort of life-limiting diagnosis it also depends you know where on that journey they are so you know particularly post-covid unfortunately you are seeing people presenting to A&E with a first presentation of extremely advanced disease mm-hmm. and you know to, to come to terms if possible you know it's, it's probably not possible but to to have that diagnosis in an acute setting to sort of be um your life being changed, you know, turned upside down in a space of an evening. Um, it's impossible to sort of come to terms with. And then I suppose if chaplaincy suddenly come and approach you, it might just all be too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose the role of a chaplaincy and anybody in that situation is to be very different to somebody who's had, say, for example, a cancer that's been there for many years and and things are sort of progressing, but, but gradually. Um, I think sometimes it, I, I don't really like the term soft skills, but it's sometimes useful because we know what they, what they mean by that. But particularly in a place like A&E, when you're saying people are vulnerable and, you know, by, by all means, staff are absolutely doing their best. But the human side of care can sometimes be, um, I don't want to say lacking because it's not through, through people not trying, but just the conditions are so hard that they're making the cups of tea, making sure someone's got a pillow, uh, making sure that somebody knows what's going on because people do wait hours without any sort of updates about what's happening. Though making sure those sides of things are addressed, I think chaplaincy have a could have a um, a big role, and then obviously that opens up a lot of conversations. Um, and and I remember listening to one of your previous podcasts about people having time and just having those few mm. moments to to take with somebody um, is invaluable. But unfortunately, that's often what is is lacking in the acute setting. Mm. Again, through nobody's fault, but just by the the conditions that people mm. are forced to work in. In fact, yeah. that was actually one of my observations that we might be best going round with the tea trolley. Yes. You know, which they which they've upped in Bradford, they've upped the input of the tea trolley because everybody needs sandwiches and drinks on a regular basis. So, mm. you know, I was talking to the to the to the lady who does that and saying, you know, could we piggyback on what you're doing? Because it's a way in with people as well, isn't it? Yes, definitely. Mm. Uh, but it, it is just the kind of pressure. And I, I think it's particularly bad at the moment, of course, post-COVID and with all the pressures of the NHS. But uh, even 
20 odd years ago when, when I started off, uh, I, I can remember going actually to the local uh, acute hospital to see one of our patients, an elderly gentleman who'd just been uh, taken in there. Uh, we were having a chat and the nursing assistant, as, as they were then, came in uh, to give him his 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 lunch because he wasn't able to 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 feed him himself so that was something the nurses would have made an arrangement not to interrupt uh and she practically force fed him you know he he was wanting to talk to her chat to her and i, I was quite shocked the thing is you can look at that and say well that's shocking you know let the old man have a little bit of conversation but actually i could see on the trolley that she had another six plates there were you know half a dozen patients still waiting to be fed uh so yeah she could spend 20 minutes you know gently with him conversing but and, mm -hmm. and these are the time pressures that it's very easy to forget especially when um when, when it's just a soundbite program on on radio. But I wonder if you've noticed, Isabel, as well, you know, the fact that people are really under pressure. People come into this job, you know, as nurses or doctors to care for people. And you can end up doing the mechanical side of things, the things you yes. have to do. And the mm. actual caring part, the reason you come into it is squeezed. I don't yes. know if you've you've felt that or noticed that yourself. Oh, yes, um, I, definitely, and and that can be actually quite, um, you know, as go as far as to say as damaging. You know, we all yes. overwhelmingly come into these jobs because we we want to um, help people. We like people. We hope that we can make people's lives better. Um, and when you're put in a, a working condition where you are forced to um, some more pastoral element of their care but I knew that there was somebody close behind me that actually was going to go and occupy that space you know I, I would probably feel a little bit maybe jealous that they have the time I, mean, I know you mm. don't you have to make the time but but, mm. but um I, I would feel reassured that that side of things were being being addressed and, and for the patients as well but I think for staff maybe on a on a wider scale an acknowledgement that what we do isn't is is hard and actually the feelings that we feel are natural um and that having i suppose a bit of a you know someone just saying or acknowledging what, what we're feeling because I, I, I like you say joe i think sometimes when you're feeling upset or you're feeling that you're not doing a good job that can manifest itself as being mm. short or a bit angry and and obviously that has such huge implications for the entire workforce um but i suppose chaplaincy opening up a conversation and saying that must be hard you know mm. this this is not a normal situation mm. I think for a lot of people would give them a you know even five seconds to pause and reflect and say actually this is hard no wonder I'm feeling like this and mm. and being able to sort of um relate their feelings to actually the situation because I think particularly for brand new doctors who have never even worked pre pre covid or even during covid most of the medical training was during covid times I, I think that there is a real lack of acknowledgement really that things have changed and things have got hard and um this a lot of what we're feeling is is a, a normal reaction to an abnormal situation mm. 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 so there's i mean you've made three really good points there i think that of what chaplains can do and that's or what we can how chaplaincy can play a role first is that 
doctors could delegate more in terms of this spiritual need they could say oh I'm going to get the chaplain to come and see you I think a lot of people don't do that because they don't know they can call on us in that way so mm. that might reassure someone to feel that they can pass it on and then you said about opening up the conversation with staff and actually talking about um, their realities and then thirdly you said about recognizing the difficulty in their situation and being honest about that are three ways that we could we could encounter staff to help which I think a lot of people might find quite useful listening to this podcast because we do mm -hmm. feel sometimes you go into a really I, 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 I feel like when I went on to A&E I felt my role there was to help the staff who were run off their feet Yes. So helping someone who's dropped their phone, helping someone who doesn't understand what's going on, sitting with someone who's having a cry, you know, that mm. was all relieving the staff there. And they would quite happily have done all those things, but they didn't have time. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. So being a member of the team is obviously an important part of what we do, I think, and getting into those teams and people using us to help them do the difficult job. Yeah, and I think another aspect, because um, I absolutely agree with us, you know, supporting staff, but actually uh, I, part of having time with, with patients as well and, and just listening can be just acknowledging that actually life is, is is crap and i think part of the challenge for the you know the, the nhs in, in in general we're so geared up to fix things you know how mm -hmm. do i put this right but o over the years i've had so many situations when actually all people really needed was an acknowledgement that mm -hmm. life wasn't very fair at the moment yeah you know and just yeah. to hear okay then they can perhaps look at therapies or things they can do but actually in a just someone to turn around and say yeah I haven't got an answer because mm. nobody has mm. Mm. but I think that's one of the um privileges about working in healthcare but also you know an area of medicine with with people who are going through difficult times is is being able to occupy that space of uncertainty and of difficulty with somebody and help them navigate through that and and saying i can't fix things mm. but i can i'm here with you to try and work out what the next steps are and you know for me that's always been not not always easy but i i feel that's an area of medicine which i've just taken so much satisfaction from and and really felt that a, a positive difference can be made but that's exactly the area that I don't have the time to do at the moment yeah. and, um, and there's, there's also a big switch there as well going in because you're not in a position of saying oh I hear some ta tablets you can take here some exercises you can do actually it's of, of being able to say to to someone and, and this includes staff as well uh if, if if we're talking with them what is it that you need what are the goals the achievements you need to to make in order to get some satisfaction from life so it, it's it's very much about being person person led patient led because the answer will for one patient will be different for another patient, uh, as opposed to just, oh yeah, you know, here, here, here's some, uh, here's a prescription. You'll go, mm. go home, try that. But that's also a reflection, isn't it, of the different style of medicine? And I'm, I'm also interested to 
hear you reflect on that, Isabel, is, is how, as a younger doctor, yes. you see a change, the influence, because I see a real change in how doctors work, this sort of negotiated, um, patient-led in the ideal world when you've got the time, uh, informing patients much more fully compared to the old school. How do you see that, the, the change in the way doctors are working? We, we there's now the opportunity to do so much so if you know sometimes it feels like there is just one treatment after another after another which you can keep trying and trying and trying and um I think there is a a there has been a shift to sort of keeping going at all costs and mm. um well there's lots of options and 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 maybe that sometimes in recent years has kind of tempted people or, or rather distracted people away from sometimes taking stock and saying right actually let's look at the situation as a whole where are we going with things um i, I feel I, I think i think as a whole generally it's becoming more acknowledged about sort of person patient-centered care and i think particularly i mean it sounds a bit cynical but thinking about the future of the nhs and resource management it is very much about what the patients want and trying to deliver that at home or you know out of hospital um, I think there's a, a, a big push to try and think about other other ways of keeping people well than bringing them into hospital. Um, I, I think there is a big, a, a, more of a drive towards, I suppose, having conversations about realities of treatments, um, you know, whatever treatment that might be, but also how the good, the bad and the, and the ugly, I suppose, mm -hmm. and, and what, what that means in reality for patients and, and sort of letting them decide, but with obviously a lot of guidance and a lot mm -hmm. of, of support and information. Um, yeah, I, I think, think that's, that's another place where we pick up sometimes when people have had um, some difficult news and are processing it, because the other thing is people mm -hmm. process at different rates, don't they? People have different levels of understanding mm -hmm. and different levels, abilities to access information. And I think that's somewhere we come in sometimes is when people are still processing yeah. Yeah. and um, maybe not, still not fully understanding everything. So, you know, obviously we're not experts in anything medical. So you're encouraging people to go back and ask the questions mm. they don't understand. But helping people with the processing, I think, is something yeah. we pick up on quite a lot, wouldn't you say, Stig? Because yeah, people have been left with their thoughts yes, uh, and left definitely. with their worries. And also this whole, I think what we come up against quite often as well is, is the patient's opinion about what should happen next mm. and the family's yeah. opinion. Yeah. And where that differs, there's a difficult thing to negotiate, I think, between within the family and and mm -hmm. certainly i've come across that certainly uh you know i i used to find that within um perhaps if, if patients and families have just had really bad news um how do you help them process that it, it's not necessarily thinking cognitively about you know the the facts and the data they, they're just trying to understand their their emotions but it's in the the white heat of the moment of having just had that bad news and uh, and i know clinical psychologists and counseling colleagues used to say that wasn't the time for them they needed to be working in a much more calmer directly therapeutic en environment and and really they, they saw part of the chaplain's role as being very much there just with p 
people, keeping them safe and allowing mm. them to to process um, in whatever way was was necessary. And it was more just processing the shock. It, it, after that, it just gets so variable. You know, I, just, I don't think I could follow a narrative. I, th I think one way that I um, someone mentioned previously in thinking about it, which I found quite helpful, is thinking about our agendas. You know, obviously patients have agendas, as the doctors yeah. have agendas, as the chaplaincy, we all have agendas, but particularly in a, in a in acute setting. So, for example, we're using as someone's just had a a big life changing diagnosis. They they have uh, agendas and part of that is just processing what's going on and trying to work out what happens next or whatever it might be for them. And it might not always be rational, but that's OK. That's just a natural response to, to life changing news. Whereas, you know, for me as a doctor, I've got quite a lot of agendas, but they're, they're different. But part mm -hmm. of it is wanting to support, to support this person through this through this news. But I also have a few things I need to decide there and then about what happens next. And I. Um, I have to find a way to kind of get those answers quite quickly sometimes because it might be something that needs quite an urgent decision. But I'm, I might find that challenging because obviously their agenda, the patient's agenda is totally different to my agenda. And it's about marrying that up one way or another. It's also true in the multidisciplinary team, I think, which is mm. one of the reasons why it's good to have a diverse team, which includes spiritual pastoral care, because, uh, as you say, patients have agendas as well. And if you've got the time to be with patients, they will say something perhaps to the doctor and something differently to a, a nurse or a physio and then something oh, gosh, different yes. again and then something different again to the chaplain so one of the one of the joys of you know, being in an mdt uh, discussing uh, a patient was that actually we could pull all these narratives together not in a sort of value way but actually uh, just trying to understand the needs and motivation of, of the patient you know I, they, I would never say they were lying or anything you know in terms of that but they were presenting different facets of their story mm, absolutely and, and having a space in an environment where where that can all come together and we can actually all work together and say oh hang on a second well they said I've interpreted it as this and somebody else has interpreted it as xyz and actually kind of working out what the full full picture is but that but that takes time it also takes energy mm, and yes. it takes um it takes in some I don't know if empathy is the right word but you know having yeah. having that space to really try and think what that person is trying to get across or why they might have phrased something is is one way or another and um that that is fantastic when it's done and it's the right thing to do but mm -hmm. it, unfortunately it's not always the reality mm, no and then you overlay that with someone who's who doesn't have English as a first language or someone who yeah. has uh, a mental health problem and then that all becomes even more complex trying to understand their where they're at and what they want mm. because of those other factors and I think those people particularly miss out quite a lot um, mm. because because they're not able to articulate consistently or um, yeah. clearly yeah yeah, yeah I, I think we all have a responsibity in healthcare. In, in, in every discipline uh, to help people tell their story uh, to to reflect that back at them uh, and and perhaps for chaplains it's the most critical element of what what we do to be a mirror 
rather than the painting to be the blank page for people to write in, uh, for, for them to be able to express their thoughts and not the other way around, not us ours. Uh, but but picking up on, on your hope to be a palliative care consultant, uh, Isabel, in, in, in due course, uh, there's still a challenge there in modern medicine for doctors especially to find the cure, to carry out the fix, conduct the therapy uh, that will restore full health, whatever that might mean. So there is for some a self-image problem still, I think, in medicine with palliative care. I still hear the refrain, less all the time, but the refrain, I came into healthcare to medicine to fix people. And in palliative care, I can't do that. I'm, I'm just trying to make the best of a, a bad job. So in the in the light of your aspiration to be a palliative care consultant, I, I am intrigued to know how, how you see that and how you see your colleagues. Mm. Well, well, I suppose essentially, you know, hearing you talk about this idea of fixing people and curing people, maybe less so curing people, but fixing people seems quite, to me, quite binary. And, and actually, yes. unfortunately, things are not... Um, that that black and white and and i suppose one of the the things i've always very much enjoyed about palliative care is sounds sort of very textbook but this holistic approach and the idea that yes if someone's got an, a chest infection you can give them antibiotics but unless you sort of look at the whole picture um addressing someone's well-being includes antibiotics but also includes looking at the heating of their house making sure they take the antibiotics they trust the drugs making sure they have you know, the rest of them, their needs met and needs being, you know, basic needs that they have uh, support systems, they have um, food they like, uh, drink they like. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Um, and, I, and I suppose I some of my frustration with medicine sometimes, you know, is that, is that we, we address the, the immediate concerns, but not necessarily the after concerns. And sometimes, you know, even economically thinking, I sort of wonder what the the, um, if, the, not, the not the value, but the um, you know, things are just being a bit short-sighted. And for me, palliative care really, really addresses that the whole side of things. And, um, you know, my my initial um, interest in palliative care came, you know, from personal experiences after my, my mum died when I was a bit younger. And what I later realised is that I found was that the benefits of good palliative care last mm. well beyond yeah. um, the immediate setting. And, you know, I'm, uh, I, I think when palliative care comes in or per chaplaincy whatever you know it comes in to somebody at where, whatever stage they're at but after death that 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 can this benefits can just continue for for so long and so i sort of actually see it as a bit as a bit of a, a, a bigger picture i suppose mm. um but i i also think that you know looking forward i think palliative care has quite an interesting future ahead of it i mean as we're talking the future of palliative care isn't really in hospices it's in the acute setting and yes. somehow we've got yeah. to find the way of 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 making sure that palliative care is available to the masses mm. at a, an e equitable standard mm. and and that is not you know i'm sure hospices will exist in some form or another but really what we've got to be looking at is how we get it at home and how we get it in hospitals yeah. and i think that's uh, going to be difficult but it's also quite ex exciting maybe but also um right um and and uh that that's going to be i think the more people that experience palliative care and whatever 
stage they're dying you know yes there are people with life-limiting diagnosis but now we have cancer treatments that are so um new and novel that the side effect profiles are so high so people are experiencing palliative care even if they've got curative disease so it's going to be expanded massively i think so mm. so i think that's exciting yes. oh well i think i mean that seems like a good place to to draw things to a close yes. thing because yeah. thank goodness there's people like you isabel who've got <laughs> that that vision and that energy to bring to the future because i agree absolutely with you you know palliative care is is in a state of change and evolution and uh it's got to be equally equally accessible and equally good for everybody and it's not i mean having just gone through it with my dad and a group of us able to advocate for him he had a pretty mm. good death but i was acutely aware that other people would have not been able to navigate that system and, and sort yeah. that out for him. And I absolutely agree with what you say. Palliative care is, it, the impact of palliative care is ongoing after someone's died. And a good death is, mm. has benefits for everybody left behind as well. So I absolutely agree yeah. with the way that you've summed that up. So that was really, really helpful. Yeah. But, you know, the, the benefits of a good death, we know going forward are massive. And we also know the trauma of a bad death is huge. Mm. And I think yeah. sometimes that can be a, a, a good a good enough goal as it, as it is. Brilliant. Well, thank, thank you, you so, so much. That was a really interesting discussion. We'll let you get on with the rest of your day off. And uh, yeah, thank just... you for giving up part of your day off. <laughs> no, thank you for having me. It's been great. Good, and just to right. remind people, if they want to contact us or if they want to comment or if they want to be a guest, um, our email is open up chap. Oh, stick, help me. <laughs> open up chap <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> okay so it's goodbye from us thank you for listening okay Hi. thanks isabel bye bye joe <laughs>